Amen. So Acts chapter 5, we pick up the story in verse 12. And Luke, writing the book of Acts, the record of the uh, early church, he writes, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were uh, all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid uh, them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducee, and they were filled with indignation and laid hands on the apostles and put them in uh, the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, but returned, or they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24, Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So when they had told them, saying, uh, so one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain went with the uh, officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they sat them before the council. The high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intent to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourself what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, uh, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and come to, came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. 
But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beat them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So last week, uh, you know, in the week prior too, we, we talked about the health of this newly birthed church. You know, they were all of one accord. They prayed together. Uh, they fellowshiped together. They were of one heart, one soul. And there was a, a genuine love and compassion within the church. You know, and that love was demonstrated by uh, them giving of themselves to one another and the giving of their possessions to meet the needs uh, of each other. And when we studied through this, when we took a look at this, we noted um, the beauty of this love that was on display in this fellowship. And we also saw that they experienced God's power and his grace. We also talked about how God brought in swift judgment to, to protect this new church from uh, the leaven of hypocrisy as Ananias and his wife Sapphira conspired to lie to God. Remember, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias and later his wife, Sapphira, slain in the spirit. They fell down dead. Slain in the spirit. That's a little joke there. Courtesy laugh appropriate. Thank you. Thank you for the courtesy laugh. Anyway, as a result of all this, we read that great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. You know, David said, Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? The Hebrew word translated knowledge there, it means perception. It means discernment. In Proverbs 9.10 one of my favorite verses says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and every evil way. Right? How I pray that we would choose the fear of the Lord. How I desire that personally for me. For me, my family, how I desire that for, for you, my brothers and sisters, right? How I pray that we would have a healthy respect and reverence for God, that, that we would have a genuine fear, right? A holy fear, a holy reverence for God because he's worthy of that, because he is awesome and he's all-powerful, almighty. Proverbs 1 22 through 29 says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you've refused, I've stretched out my hand 
and no one regarded? Because you've disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. You know what? It's a choice that we need to make. So many people in the church today, instead of choosing the fear of the Lord, they rationalize their bad behavior, the behavior that's not pleasing to the Lord. And you know what? My heart is that we would flee from that that we would just surrender to him and reap the benefits of obedience. The benefits that come with obedience are power and grace, the indwelling, infilling, overflowing of the Holy Spirit. And best of all, sweet, intimate fellowship with the Father. If you look back in your Bibles at Acts chapter 5.11, it says that great fear came upon not only all the church, but it also fell upon all who heard these things. Now, this is a reference to those mentioned in verse 13, our text, right? None of the rest dared to join them. You know, it's talking about those who were watching from a distance, right? Those that heard all about Ananias and Sapphira, how they were not committed, how they were not true believers, and those that were watching from a distance, I mean, they feared. They were afraid. And they decided it would probably be safer for them not to join this group of believers instead of being seen among the believers, but not taking the message to heart, right? Living in a way that was contrary to what they were apparently professing by being found with the believers, right? Those that dared not join in, understood that hypocrisy kills. Verse 12, it says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all of one accord in Solomon's porch. This is actually a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 20. He said, And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying Signs, right? The signs and wonders were an authentication. Uh, it was a confirmation of what the apostles were saying was in fact true, right? Signs and wonders are not intended to be a basis of faith for us, right? And the reason why Mark says, tells us when the uh, scribes and the Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they said, teacher, we want to see a sign from, from you. And, and Jesus said, and this is Mark 12, uh, 28, where it says, uh, the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answers in the very next verse, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. The sign that Jesus was willing to offer these people was the sign of his resurrection from the dead. And if Jesus' word and his resurrection is not enough to convince the person 
or any person that he is who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God, then no sign or miracle will ever be enough. Right? The problem with signs and miracles as a basis of our faith is the devil is capable of performing signs and wonders. And he does so in order to deceive. Jesus said regarding the end times, the times in which we're living now, he says false Christ and false prophets, they're going to arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, speaking of the Antichrist, uh, he said, the coming of the lawless one according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You know what? Seeing should never be a requirement for us to believe because we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. But for us as believers, we do need to understand believing does lead to seeing. It's just one of the beautiful truths about, about being a Christian. And as a result of the Spirit's authentication of the apostles' ministry, we read in verse 13 that people esteemed them highly and, be and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. People were being added to the Lord. People from all different walks of life, poor people, rich people, men, women, all one body. And the church was increasing multitudes of people's lives being changed. You know, I can't help but ask, why don't we see that kind of increase in the church today? You know, and the answer that I come to is, I'm not sure. I don't know why. But I think, could it be because those within the church are no longer living in a way that causes people to esteem the church highly, as it says there in verse 13? Could that be the case? In verse 15, it says, So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. People, I think, often misread this verse, right? They think that when Peter's shadow fell on these people, well, they were then healed. But that's not what it says, right? It says that they brought people into the streets hoping that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them. You see, in the Middle East back then, and, you know, even in our culture in the recent past, right, uh, you know, uh, the shadow speaks of a person's influence. That's what it's talking about. It wouldn't be uncommon to see a parent grab a young child and move him out of the way as a bad person approached, not wanting him to cast a bad shadow on their child. And then on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, if there's a person that's honored and esteemed were to walk by, you might see a, a parent try to place their son or daughter in the path hoping his shadow would bring them good fortune, right? We're not told uh, that anyone was healed here by this event, but this is an indication of the high esteem that people had for Peter and others within the church, as referenced in verse 13. 
You know what? Each of us here today, each of us watching online, we have a shadow of influence. Call it a, I don't know, a shadow ministry if you like. Our shadows of influence are created in the eyes of others when they see the degree in which we allow the sunlight, the S-O-N light, the sunlight to shine upon us. When we walk in the light of Jesus, people will see Jesus in us. They'll see his blessing upon us. They'll see his favor upon us. They see his glory about us. And you know what? We don't even have to say a word. They recognize that. But the shadows our lives will project when our lives come into alignment with Jesus, our loving Savior, will have an influence on the lives of others. You know, when the light of God is shining on us, shining through us, you know, a beautiful shadow of Jesus is being cast, influencing the lives of others. You know, what's your shadow ministry look like? And in verse 16, also a multitude gathered with the surrounding cities from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Everyone who comes, either, uh, you know, being brought by others or crawling to Jesus themselves, they were all healed. And it reminds me of Matthew 12, 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, and a great and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. You know, it sounds the same because it's the same ministry there in Matthew and here in Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says, The former accounts I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The former account was the gospel of Luke. Now, Acts is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in and through his church, God doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. All that to say this, Jesus continues to save and to heal all who come to him. Everyone, anyone who comes to him, he will save no exceptions. Never believe, never believe, never give yourself to believe any system of theology that says God is only interested in certain select groups of people because it's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. If a person will confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead, they will be saved. Right? For, um, from, for the heart, one believes uh, unto righteousness. And with the mouth, uh, confession is made to salvation. Right? For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Romans 10, 9 through 13. Such a beautiful passage. In verse 17, 
Then the high priest rose up and those who were with them, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. They laid hands on the apostles and put them uh, in the common prison. Now, the, the word translated indignation there is a Greek word that means envy or jealousy, right? The apostles this time, all 12 of them, were arrested because one, they defied the previous order found in Acts chapter 4 not to speak uh, or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Secondly, they were arrested because the high priest and the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection or supernatural. So having, you know, the apostles going around preaching Jesus is risen from the dead and then doing miracles, authenticating that fact. You know, it was just bad for their theology, you know. But the main reason that they were arrested was because of envy. You know, the idea of these untrained, uneducated men preaching and having such success, multitudes of men and women joining this new church, the idea of these men, followers of a carpenter from the backwater town of Nazareth, no less, having such success, it was just infuriating, right? So they had all 12 of the apostles arrested. You know, I think it's crazy to see. I think it's enlightening to see also. But to just see how much envy and jealousy can be hidden under religious purity, right? Under the guise of defending the faith. And in verse 18, it says that they laid their hands on the apostles. And the grammar there implies that this was done publicly. In verse 19, it says, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Speaking of angels, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister uh, for those who will inherit salvation, right? We see in the book of Acts, not to mention through the entire Bible, we see it over and over again that this is true. Angels are sent to minister to us as we serve the Lord. And in verse 20, the angel says, go stand in the temple and speak to the words, uh, speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, if an angel were to stand before you and to tell you to speak to the people all the words of this life, what would you say? Would you talk about Jesus forgiving sins? Would you tell the people how one day Jesus is going to return for his bride, the church, uh, and take us to heaven to always be where he is? Would you speak of the promise of heaven uh, where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain? Would you speak of eternal life and uh, a life spent with the Lord, worshiping him uh, before the throne? You know, all of that is true, but there is an abundant life. And I think a lot of Christians misunderstand this. There is an abundant life to be had between salvation and going to heaven, right? We need to believe and understand the reality of eternal life 
You know, we're to enjoy that right now. We currently have abundant life. We currently have eternal life. It's ours right now. And I'm not saying that it's not hard as a believer. Believe me, it's hard to be a believer. Would you agree? It's hard to be, be a believer. But at the same time, it's filled with blessings upon blessings. It's a blessed life, right? Sure, there are trials now, but they're working for our good. You know, there are tribulations that we go through, but God uses them for his purposes. He's using them to shape us, to mold us into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus Christ. And yes, we face hardships and trying times, but God uses them to create perseverance in us, right? We all have experienced just incredible, heartbreaking disappointments that have come our way, but God uses those things to make us long for his kingdom. You know, I never want to be a person who paints Christianity in these rosy terms, you know, it's so wonderful. It's just a wonderful experience, you know. Whenever a, a believer uh, places their faith in Jesus, they'll never face another trial. They'll never go through any hardships, tribulations. I don't want to be that guy that preaches that because it's not true. It's just not true. Christians have trials. Christians get sick and die, right, just like everyone else. But we have Jesus with us, right, in the midst of the storm. It's Jesus that's leading us when we're faced with uncertainty. You know, we have his spirit to comfort us in our grief and despair. We have his word that he'll keep us, never forsaking us, never abandoning us, carrying us through to the end. And we have his promises to cling to and to trust in. You know, there isn't a more exciting or fulfilling life than the life of a Christian. A life spent walking with God, experiencing the presence of the Lord, right? Being led by his Holy Spirit. And on top of all of that, heaven too. That's our future, right? Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and we're on our way to heaven. We're not citizens of this world trying to make our way to heaven. We're citizens of heaven making our way through this world, right? Salvation is the starting line. Heaven is the finish line. But we must never forget, you know what? The race in between those two points is still very important to our Father. And in verse 21, it says, when they heard that, right, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. What an example the apostles are to us. An example of obedience. I mean, they didn't sleep in. They didn't, you know, wake up late, have a late breakfast. And then after a few cups of coffee, a couple eggs over easy. You know, they didn't show up in the temple mid-morning, right? They enter the temple early in the morning, it says. Let's not delay to do what the Lord has instructed us to do. Let's do it at once, immediately, and as best we can. Right? Calling on him to give us strength to carry out his commands. And verse 21 says, 
But the high priest and those uh, with him came and called the council together with the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely. And, uh, you know, the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. I mean, just imagine the surprise. I mean, just try to picture it in your mind. I mean, you know, the guards going to get the apostles. They're walking through the corridors of the dungeon. They're talking to each other. Maybe they're joking around, you know, laughing. And the guards, they get to the, you know, they, they come to the guards there at the outside of the door. You know, one of them turns around, unlocks the door. They open it up. And the prison cell is empty. And you just imagine the shock and the dismay that comes over these guards, right? Now, when the high priest, verse 24, the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And again, just imagine it if you can. And, and I mean no disrespect. This is just, just the way my mind works, right? I mean, the high priest played by Tim Conway, right? The, all the chief priests standing around, Harvey Corman, Marty Feldman, Don Knotts, you know, they're all standing around just dumbfounded. I can just see Tim Conway's shoulders kind of around it like. I mean, and then all of a sudden somebody bursts in. Hey, guys. Did you know those guys you put in prison yesterday? I mean, did you know they're out in the temple teaching the people? And I, and I imagine they were just overcome with shock, just speechless. It says, verse 26, Then the captain went out, probably after gathering himself, the captain went out with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. They were afraid of the people. They didn't want to start a riot. And worse than that, they didn't want to. Be stoned, right? Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you? Again, just imagine uh, Tim Conway. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. I mean, it blows me away to notice that they hate Jesus so much they can't even use his name. They can't say Jesus. They say this, this name. They say this man's blood, right? Today, our society, I mean, we're too advanced to avoid saying the name of Jesus, right? No, today, the haters of Jesus, they say his name, but they use it as a curse word. They use it in vain. And in verse 28, these religious leaders say, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And I'm always shocked by the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. You know, it wasn't that long ago that they were standing before Pilate asking him to crucify Jesus. And Pilate washed his hands and said, you know, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And they replied, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, they don't want to be held responsible for the death of Jesus. But those that reject Jesus don't get off that easily. Verse 29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him... 
God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter, again, speaking for all the, the apostles, boldly preaches Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, it's a repeated example of what our message is to be to the world. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That needs to be our approach. Not, not seeking to use persuasive words, not endeavoring to, you know, engage in human wisdom, but simply Christ crucified, the power of God. Right? It needs to be our approach because it's the only message that has the power to change a life for eternity. Romans 1.16, you know the verse, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In verse 30 and 32, I believe Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. I believe that Peter's reaching out to these religious leaders, to these men, that they might be saved. Hey, make no mistake about it. You guys murdered him, right? But he's the one whom God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. Hey, notice the word savior there in that verse, right? It's important to make this connection. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, all caps, Jehovah. And besides me, there is no Savior. Peter is declaring to these religious leaders that Jesus is the Savior. Right? Speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah says that Jehovah is the Savior. Right? The same Holy Spirit speaking through Peter here is declaring to the religious leaders that Jesus is Jehovah, the God of Israel. And that happens to be the clear and unmistakable teaching of the Bible. Again, verse 31, Peter says, Jesus is Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. God's heart is that none should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus doesn't hate the religious leaders. You know, you see this in, in John 5, 34. Again, one of my favorite Bible verses when the Pharisees were arguing with him. Jesus says, Yet I do not receive testimony from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus doesn't hate these men. He doesn't hate these guys. And we see here, I believe very strongly that Peter is attempting to reach out to these men in order that they might be saved. Right? Jesus doesn't hate people. He came, gave his life for people. He doesn't hate 
homosexuals or adulterers. He doesn't hate liars or uh, hypocrites. He hates their sin, but he loves them. And it's his desire to see them saved. May we be ever so careful not to communicate to others that God doesn't care for a certain type of people, a certain particular group of people. You know, God forbid that that's what people hear from us or see in our attitudes or in our disapproval of their lifestyle. Let's be ever so careful not to condemn anyone whom Jesus loves, right? I've known a lot of people uh, who are gay and want nothing to do with Jesus today because of the way Christians have come across to them. You know, let's speak the truth in love, knowing that if it wasn't for the grace of God, man, there go I. Verse 33 says, When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. These religious leaders hear Peter speak to them in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they become furious, veins bulging, red-faced, and they want to kill the apostles. And that's exactly how envy works in a heart. Right? Here's these untrained, uneducated men, ordinary men through whom the power of the Holy Spirit is doing extraordinary things. And you put them in contrast with these educated, ordained, sophisticated, approved ministers who are completely devoid of God's power. Right here, the apostles risking their lives to share the living word of God while these religious leaders are trying to protect their dead traditions. Here we see the apostles and the church are enjoying a new, fresh work of God while the Sadducees are trying to defend old, stale ideas of God. Envy hates what others have regardless of what it is and where they got it, right? And these religious leaders, they just want to put a stop to this, right? And so another murder or two, or 12, it's not too much to be, you know, considered in their eyes, right? In verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to uh, put the apostles out for a little while. Gamaliel was a great man. He was very respected among the people. He loved God's word. Um, he was a teacher of the law. And extra-biblical writings uh, tell us that he was called the beauty of the law. I mean, that's a pretty lofty title. He was called the beauty of the law by his contemporaries, right? And Acts 22.3 tells us that Gamaliel was the teacher of one Saul of Tarsus, later to be known Paul the Apostle. And tradition tells us that once Nicodemus, who at one time was a member of the council and the teacher of Israel, once he had helped Joseph of Arimathea take down the body of Christ from the cross, and afterwards, when he helped Joseph of Arimathea uh, put his body in the tomb, Nicodemus was excommunicated. 
And it was Gamaliel that took him into his house after Nicodemus lost everything. He was a great man. And he says, Nicodemus, uh, sorry, Gamaliel says to them in verse 35, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now, we don't know anything about this Thutis that's mentioned here, but the idea is that the Romans put him down. And then after that, you know, this Judas of Galilee came along. And Josephus actually gives us a lot of detail about uh, this revolt led by uh, Judas of Galilee. And the revolt was over paying taxes. And the Romans came in again and put him down also. Interestingly enough to me, we see uh, some traits of false leaders here, right? They claim to be someone, right? They, they have some special insight or revelation. You know, cults are uh, usually centered around one man's interpretation of God's word or some other godly book or writing. Secondly, they draw um, people to themselves. They're after the glory. They're seeking the glory. They exalt or elevate themselves above others. And you know what? When we see those types of things in a ministry, that's the type of thing that we're to run from. We're to watch out and, and run from it. Verse 38, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of theirs uh, uh, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So when you read that question, you've got to ask yourself, is that true? Is it real? You know, do the things of men and false religions just come to nothing after a while, while God's work continues on? And the answer is no, right? That's not the case at all. Look at the Jehovah's Witness. Look at the Mormons, Hinduism, Buddhism, right? But what I think that Gamaliel is trying to communicate here is that this movement of Jesus and his followers at that time, right? If it's not of God, then what would happen? The Romans would come in uh, and they would squash it just like they did uh, to the others. And in verse 40, it says, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You know, I guess hatred runs deep in these guys. You know, I mean, following the advice that, you know, uh, may not be a good idea to fight against them because you'd actually be fighting against God. In their minds, Gamaliel's advice didn't mean they shouldn't beat these guys. You know, in verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I mean, how do you defeat guys who counted all joy when they suffer shame for Jesus Christ? The answer is you can't. Can't be defeated. How do you handle difficulties, hardships? 
persecution. I mean, do you count it all joy? Right? James, a half-brother of Jesus, says in James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you glory in tribulation? Paul writes, Romans 5, 1 through 5, some of my favorite verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, I mean, it, it, it gets better, he says. And not only that, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do you take pleasure in troubling times? Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, in light of this, most gladly I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, in light of that, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches. Um, in, in, in reproaches and needs, persecutions and distress, right? For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong, right? Paul also wrote Romans eight twenty eight, And we know all things work together for the good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. You know, these are verses that we all know. These are verses that at least Romans 8, 28, we all probably can recite from memory. But are these things what we truly believe? You know, do you honestly believe that the present situation that you're facing, the trials, the tribulations, the troubling times, is something that God is working out for your good? Or is it just something religious that we say when we come across people who are going through hard times? The truth is, we can rejoice in difficult times. It's a choice that each of us needs to make. You know what? We have God's promises. He's promised to never leave us, never forsake us, no matter how dire the situation may appear. And when we cling to the Lord, you know, our loving Savior, in difficult times, you know, in trying times, in troubling times, it ultimately reveals to the world the reality of God in our lives. It shows the world that He's real, right? And it brings glory to His name because His strength is revealed in our weakness. You know, 
If it wasn't enough, wait, again, there's more. It only gets better. It brings us into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Because he's a suffering servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, right? And our rejoicing in him, our clinging to him, hanging on to him in our troubling times helps us to enter into this deeper fellowship with him, the fellowship of, of his suffering. You know what? He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us with an everlasting love. And he won't ever allow any of us to experience more than what we can bear. We just need to trust in him, submit our hearts and our lives to him. And when we do that, the promise is we'll experience joy unspeakable and we'll possess a peace that surpasses understanding, right? And he will see us through to the end. He will be found to be ever so faithful to the praise and glory of God the Father. And he'll do it for us just like he did for the apostles here in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we do, we know that you're faithful. We know that you are wonderful, loving, gracious, all-knowing, all-powerful. Lord, we know that you love us. Lord, help us. Help us to rejoice in difficult times. Help us take pleasure in tribulations and persecutions. Help us to just submit ourselves to you in such a way that you would be seen in us in a fresher way. God, we want to glorify you. We want to see you exalted in the hearts of people. Use us however you see fit. Lord, bring us to that place that we would be able to pray, Lord, no matter the cost, be glorified in our life and even in our death when that time comes. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.